And the triggers for conflict are the commodity cycles, because essentially nations only fight over resources one way or the other. And when resources become more scarce, it accelerates challenges and catalyzes and precipitates. What can history tell us about the present and the future? Can pandemics and even wars be predicted? What can we learn from the past in order to alter the course of the future? We are living through turbulent times, but how much of this could we foresee happening in advance? And what can we do to alter our behaviours to ensure that we live in a more peaceful, prosperous world? To answer these questions, I'm delighted today to be joined by David Murren, who is a polymath known for his advisory uh, content throughout the years uh, on big picture macro trends that we're talking, we'll, we'll discuss today. His career has focused on the recurring patterns of history and using them to try and predict the future for markets and society during turbulent times. And he has a remarkable track record. His book, Breaking the Code of History, predicted the great uh, next uh, viral epidemic would originate in China, which we'll touch upon during uh, today's conversation. Uh, but uh, without any further spoiler alerts on some of his predictions, we'll touch upon that over the course of the uh, interview. Uh, prior prior to his current work, he began his unique career in the oil exploration business before joining J.P. Morgan in the 1980s uh, and eventually uh, founded an asset management company of his own uh, and later uh, a global forecaster, which we'll talk about today, which is his latest uh, initiative. David, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show at this uh, crazy time that we're living in this turbulent time. I'm, I'm really fascinated to unpick your uh, work over the years to, to, to learn what 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 we can see from history about what's been happen- happening in advance of today, but what we can more importantly learn about how we can change tomorrow. So uh, delighted to have you with us today. It's great to have that focus. It's really what my work is all about. So thanks very much for a super introduction. Look forward to you doing the unpicking. Yes, thank you. So uh, tell us a little bit, uh, you know, you've got a you know, hugely varied career, but I, I suppose there's some core tenets that have uh, uh, underpinned a lot of your work uh, everything from human behavior to analyzing trends. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey into global forecast and what led you to, to begin this organization? Well, the threads go back really, I think, you know, to, to early childhood when my mother said, you know, what would you like me to read you? And I said, could you read this book about tanks? And she was horrified <laughs> that I was, you know, intrinsically fascinated by warfare. And indeed, that fascination has continued all the way through my life to you know, quite an extreme level of wars in different periods, how people fought, essentially how they won, how they lost as you know very quickly um, for me i felt as if the history of mankind was told in its wars and for people that chose not to study them they didn't really seek to understand who we were and it was a little bit like uh, newton's dirty secret because newton was known well for his mathematics or he's known well for his physics excuse me my cat is determined to get a little <laughs> look in here you can see the tail she always turns up when there's a podcast <laughs> every podcast has a tail if you watch now uh, anyway and, and essentially it's this idea that mankind fights its wars and how it fights and why it fights is the essence of our history and i felt that from an early age um, and so there's one conduit that runs to the right. Uh, and then I was brought up in a kind of family that was 
very cosmopolitan for you know the end of the empire period born in 63 when actually britain became quite insular my parents traveled you know my mother was part of the indian army's construct so the empire was part of our family legacy my grandmother was an awesome memsab formidable lady lovely and you know truly of the empire and i had that really visceral kind of personal experience but all of that you know, that wasn't something that was important it was an embarrassment to us that we'd lost everything i still remember that lost sense that britain had Mm. But I was brought up traveling. So the world was a small place rather than just one place. And that was I'm very lucky to have that. And I felt in my studies, I wanted to study something that was academically challenging. And I studied mm. physics. And essentially, the thing I took away from physics was these complex constructs that could be narrowed down into simple equations that had huge ramifications. So when I listened to someone explain a complex idea with a complex answer, my first response is, have you distilled it to its essence? And that's really, in all of my work, something I've tried to think about is the essence of human dynamics rather than just a whole lot of waffly words that sound good and no one understands. And that's sort of been a guide that that, physic, that discipline of physics and thinking has been essential to everything that I subsequently started to examine. And off I went to the Exeter University. I studied, I came out. I knew what I wanted to do. I became a seismologist from a geophysicist and found myself in Papua New Guinea at this seminal moment when dropped off in the middle of nowhere, I had 60 Papua New Guineans and it was raining and I wanted them to work. And I thought they wouldn't work because they were just testing me. So I use the immortal words, you know, in my country, women and children work in the rain and there was this awesome silence and Augustus the son of the chief went apoplectic waved his machete around and I thought that's not so good you know, <laughs> it feels really quite uncomfortable alone on this helipad and then suddenly 60 of them all cannibals by the way did, did I realize after was eating flesh within the past few years of a neighboring tribe brandishing their weapons sort of jumping up and down I remember thinking shit here lies David dead on the first day of work what do you do <laughs> you can't run you can't fight what would my grandmother do and I thought well I can't show them any fear and I jumped into the middle of them and I faced them down and slowly a bit like a cartoon character out of the Pink Panther I kind of tiptoed through this mass of people <laughs> staring them down thinking any minute they're going to hack me to pieces and suddenly I found myself out of the cluster walking towards my blue tarpaulin looking back thinking, how am I still alive? That's really weird. <laughs> Sitting down and starting a letter to mum saying, dear mum, surrounded by cannibals, might not make it, do love you. And uh, then they come in and hit me and batter me and individually. And finally, they all gave up. And what was amazing, it was four hours, three hours later, they were sitting vacantly around the tent, like children who'd had the infinite, massive temper tantrum and were exhausted by it. And in four hours, we got them back to work. And there was no <laughs> underlying maliciousness. There was no culture where in our country, you know, you never forgive someone when you get that angry. In fact, generationally, you're still punishing their children. Whereas over there, it's just an emotion which spread amongst everyone and dissipated. And as a physicist sort of mindset, it reminded me of a charged capacitor that was fully charged and that Augustus charged everyone else as if you dropped the pebble in upon the ripple spread. And then the charge dissipated over time. And then it just, there was nothing left. Now, I remember thinking that's just unbelievable to watch that. And it happened time and time again. And I concluded they had a low threshold of individuality and they were collectively sharing their emotions. And that in itself was an amazing observation because I thought that was humanity in the past. And like a time machine, I was viewing our past in Papua New Guinea. And then 
some years later, I swapped jobs and I ended up on the trading floor of JP Morgan. And being a good physicist, I looked at this trading floor and thinking, I know nothing about economics. So let's look at, you know, the economists. They've got to know, right? Well, they didn't have a scooby-doo as far as I was concerned about what happened next. In fact, lots of lovely words. In fact, I think of them as much as modern witch doctors. You know, they really, people looked at them for insight, but their insight is about as useless as it comes in general, apart from few, one or two exceptions who I can think of. But a general group of predictive, you know, tools, very poor. And then I looked around, I thought, oh, my goodness, I've seen this before. These guys are all sharing their emotions. And this is a collective system. And here we are no different from Papua New Guineans. And the penny really dropped as to who we were at that moment is we are a collective organism. Modern man has a higher threshold of individuality, but we're still collective. And that started the process of how do you predict markets based on this collective dynamic? And, of course, being a physicist, I related price to emotional behavior, and I started to quantify price behaviors in markets to emotional behaviors, and a whole new world opened. You know, became a proprietary trader, successful, you know, one of the first with these sort of insights, and then started a group for the whole bank, which changed the whole way J.P. Morgan did things with another chap in New York who actually showed me some great pattern recognition tools of a man who developed them in the 30s named Elliot. And I still wonder how the hell he ever came up with such detailed architecture for price in one go without sort of a gradual sort of iterative process. So um, there I was, you know, able to predict prices and do things others didn't think possible. And what do you do with that? Well, you know, ultimately, I started my own hedge fund and ran that for 25 years and did all sorts of fascinating things, you know, picking the highs and lows of the Asian crisis, 01 to 03, made a great deal of money in 07 to 08. So the big dislocations, very successful at predicting. They're not random at all. But the seminal moment for me was 9-11 and watching those two aeroplanes go into the Twin Towers. And I come from an aviation family. My father was a senior aviation engineer in the CIA. And so aviation had been part of our culture. And I was well aware of, you know, these planes weren't having an accidental bad moment, as someone suggested with a navigational beacon. I knew instantly what it was. And I remember thinking, amongst the shock of the experience, what if this is something else? What if the assumption that having won the Cold War with the end of history and democracy wins, what if that assumption is completely incorrect and this represents a failure of the American immune system because the intelligence services are competing rather than sharing information which let the infection in, in this case an attack, because there were attacks happening all over the place that were repelled. So like an immune system failure, and what could that immune system failure indicate? So the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, maybe they were competing. And if they were competing, that's not a sign of unison. That's a sign of decline and fracture. So how could I now look at this event in a completely different light? And it was like a light bulb going in on my head. Okay. So the more I went down here, the more I thought, this is interesting. So my next thought was, what if this is an event of decline that's of 500 years? And when markets only give you 100 years of price information, how am I going to work out that we've got a much bigger wave impacting our shores than anything you can see in the prices and 100 years of price history? So I thought, okay, let's reverse engineer this. Let's take the price behaviors into an emotional pattern of a system. So I built an emotional pattern of a system and a psychological pattern. And then I created the five stages of empire. And the five stages of empire are published in Breaking the Code of History. And it was sort of like a light bulb moment, five stages. And then I went back through every empire in history using wars as the clocks of the empire. 
and they all did the same thing. And it was, I I couldn't believe it. It was like suddenly a code had just suddenly unraveled human history. And whether they're ancient Egyptian or Roman or Greek, they all did the same thing at the same time. And this cycle begat very similar things, which we'll talk about in a second. And that was the moment when I suddenly thought, whoa, hang on. And then the next problem came because Western empires had much shorter durations. The Portuguese, the Spanish, the Dutch, the French, then Britain, and then Germany tried twice, once as a Christian, once as an atheist system, and then along came America. And the duration of those national systems was much shorter. So I asked myself the question, had technological change accelerated human behavior? And then I realized it. The the truth is that if you took the system as a religious mimic empire, as in the super Western Christian empire, those national systems were like the pistons of an engine, which had exactly the same duration as all the prior empires, roughly the same time. And that meant that America was the last of the Western Christian empires. And that meant when America was going into decline, which I highlighted as 9-11 within a few months, we were really in trouble (laughs) because essentially our Western world was in decline. And so then I thought nature abhors a vacuum. So what could be rising? And I made a couple of observations. One was because the British Empire at the peak of its cycle was so dominant, that world was inherited by America. There are naturally and have been pistons within the world. So if you could be an investor with green skin in a flying saucer in the past, you could have invested in the Western Christian world somehow, find you know, some crappy silver coins. And then you could have gone to the Asian system around the Tigris and Euphrates, the Indian system around the Indus. And you could have gone to the Chinese system uh, between the Yellow River and the Yangtze. And they were really like different pistons, which were non-synchronous. But along came this super Western Christian empire in Britain, the first great maritime empire, and every other piston was shoved down to zero and zeroed, while the Western Christian system was at the peak. And so as it came off the peak, these other pistons started to rise, which is why you saw self-identity in the Middle East, self-identity in India, and you know the rise of the Chinese system all over again. And these that, that they had been synchronized in a very unique way by single dominance. And America took over that dominance, but sufficiently was smaller. And this is the point that I couldn't, you know, really. Britain was the greatest empire the world's ever seen. However powerful we think America was at its peak, it was never as powerful as Britain. And so when people, you know, who've written about empires think that America was greater than Britain and China's greater than America, their sense of proportion is completely missing. The British Empire in 1870 ruled the world in whatever shape or form it chose. And where it didn't rule, it influenced in a total way. And its ability to do that was having a battle fleet that could take on any two countries and still win. No one came close. Um, So that was the sort of origins of a complete change in thought. And then I started to think about other things. So I sort of correlated, okay, so now you have these empires. And what do they do when they go to war? Well, I call it the road to polarization. Polarization is not the split in a society. It's the amalgamation of society's coherence, which then makes it collectively able to go to war. Um, And Nazi Germany is a prime example of how to create coherence and throw out every other values which are different. And we've seen that to some extent in Russia and underestimated how Putin has really polarized his society with his stories, because anyone that would resist them has been suppressed or has left. So Russia is more polarized than the West we give it credit for, which means it only accepts information in the format it's ready to accept. And Putin has done that very successfully. 
and we underestimate that in the West. And polarization is really about dehumanizing your opposition. So when you kill the other human, they're not really human. That's part of the process. And you see that process leading to conflict and warning you that conflict is imminent. And the triggers for conflict are the commodity cycles, because essentially nations only fight over resources one way or the other. And when resources become more scarce, it accelerates challenges and catalyzes and precipitates them. So those are the key thesis. And then I was able to highlight that wars are not wars. They're very different from wars of expansion, pilot wars, which are small wars, which indicate intention of hegemonic systems and their weakness or strength and wars of decline. And so that, you know, wars are not the same. And the understanding of war needs to be expanded by people to, to, to understand when it happens. And the last piece was actually the relationship between the rise and fall of empires and disease. And all expanding systems exported have exported a disease of some type. So what I really looked at was China was the expanding system as part of the super Asian empire, which started with Japan. The second is China and the third is India. So they replicate the super system, which we've seen in the West. And that I predicted that because China would be hegemonically challenging America, it would also be investigating biological warfare as an asymmetric advantage, especially with the biogenetic trends that were happening 20 years ago. It was obvious that anyone would be looking at that as a weapon of exploitation. So I made the prediction in 09 in the book, and actually made it before, that the next great pandemic would come from a Chinese weapons laboratory and would be used in some shape or form in an asymmetric conflict. So I was acutely aware of the origins of what I was seeing in Wuhan, which was enhanced transmissibility way beyond a natural accelerated transmissibility from a zoonotic origin. And also it was coming from China. And obviously Wuhan has a whole series of PLA weapons laboratories. So by the 5th of January, every one of my clients or relationships understood that a pandemic was coming, we'd warn them. And yet our government took at least another 10 weeks to work out what was coming down the track. So I think the power of some of our work speaks for itself, not just in that example, but in many others we can discuss. Yes, thank you for that uh, comprehensive overview, David. And I will say I've recorded over 500 episodes of various podcasts over the last few years, and your opening story is <laughs> definitely the most unique story uh, that I've ever heard, yeah, particularly a reference to, to, to the, to the uh, uh, story where you were basically hounded by uh, cannibals. That's, that's, that's certainly a, that's a new, new opening gambit uh, for me. Uh, well, let's but, be record. If you're going to be original, have an original experience. And <laughs> there must be a lot of people that didn't survive their original experience. So you see, it has some risks, right? <laughs> yes, but fascinating how that became the starting point of really examining human behavior, which really, you know, for me personally, is, is, is a, has been my common thread through the work that I've done over the last five, six, seven years on content production like this. Um, uh, and I do believe it, it, it helps us understand more about ourselves individually, but also co collectively. And, and what I'm excited about today is learning about some of your observations through, uh, particularly through the lenses of what's happening in the world right now, post-pandemic, uh, entering into a conflict phase, the changing global order. A lot of people are trying to make sense of these big picture macro uh, challenges, um, but, but, but struggling to find uh, really insightful uh, pearls of wisdom that can help them make sense of these uh, this tumultuous time. So um, you mentioned your five phases of empire model. Could you tell us a little bit about that model and uh, walk us through those five phases so that we can start to visualize uh, the different stages? That, that sure. I mean, the reason why so, so human beings organize into social systems 
And um, since breaking the code of history, I've published uh, two other theories, which really go back to the fundamental drivers of why we do it. And the first one is called human anti-entropy. And essentially, our survival methodology is to build collective social systems that multiply our capabilities, organize ourselves, and push back the entropic world around us to create control over it. So the origins of that process have been, for example, bigger and bigger social systems. And if you go and look at the Roman Empire, as you enter into that phase, it was a a polytheistic society where there was a god for everything that was important. And if it went wrong, you displeased that god. By the end of it, you had polytheism replaced by monotheism, Christianity, because basically the empire had inferred control over the environment to the point where you only needed one god. And a good example would have been grain in the early years. And, you know, grain didn't go well in Italy and they all starved. But at the end of the empire, if it didn't go well in Italy, you got it from Egypt or Spain or you got it from North Africa. So suddenly you didn't need a grain god. And that that conference of control reduced the requirement, A, increase understanding in some ways, but B, dependency. And dependency was linked to this polytheistic model. So you can see in that process that the empire became bigger and bigger. It exerted more control and more control meant that it became more powerful and assertive. And therefore, the survivability of the human system within it was enhanced, apart from the fact you're going to decline. Now, all systems are started with an impulse and they coherently rise. They reach a peak and they lose their impulse and they start to become old and sequescent. And at that stage, this other theory called, you know, about human entropy explains that essentially the systems that are sequestered are useless. Like the sequestered cells in your body aren't dead, aren't alive. They're taking up space and they make you inefficient. And as soon as you let more and more of them in your body, you become old and you're removing removal of that process in antioxidation mechanisms gives your body youth and old people are full of them because they're not as youthful, and their sequestered cells are a significant part of their body. So empires are very similar. When they become old, they need to be removed from the perspective of collective humanity. And the way we do that is another system from another region, which has an impulse we'll talk about, starts to rise. And as it rises, it seeks to challenge for that hegemonic space. And the way it challenges is through conflict. And conflict then is a Darwinistic process of strong versus weak. The weak is pushed aside, replaced by the strong, which then is usually bigger than the one it replaced and reaches a new peak in anti-entropic collective human dynamics. So if you look at where we were in the peak of Roman civilization and where we are now, we control more of our environment, more of the variables that would have wiped us out than we've ever done. And we've used warfare intrinsically to sweep aside the weak. So as I spoke to a recent group of generals, essentially, they will always have a job and don't ever believe we're going through a period of peace. We're going through a hiatus when, you know, the, the power dynamics are such that the old doesn't have to be removed. But until we understand we have been using war as an intrinsic survival mechanism to take the peaks of the human collective to higher anti-entropy levels of control, which gives us greater longevity, we're going to keep having them. And my point, number one, to really take home is until we realize how we use wars, they will keep happening, however repellent they are, that we use them to wipe out old systems. And we have to find another way to create competition and replacement to remove wars. That's the only way it's going to happen, in my opinion. So the reason why we create these social systems 
is the next process is we are not individuals. We are a collective organism. We share feelings and thoughts and behaviors just as Papua New Guineans. And yes, individuals lead and some are led, more are led than they lead. But essentially, we are a social organism and we are interconnected. And that interconnectivity gives a simultaneous transmission of thoughts and all sorts of you know, theories around in, in physics start to explain how we communicate way beyond direct connection, which I believe is part of that collective. Uh, and the evidence is huge that we can know who's on the end of the phone, for example, before it rings. So the sort of synchronicity in thought is also underlines this net communication. So this idea that modern communications accelerates the process of human interlinkage, I'm not convinced about. I think we already have it available to us and it's part of systems. So the first impetus is when populations grow, you see the first phase of regionalization. And basically, you'll tend to find quite a linear leadership at the top. And the population under grows. And of course, the people at the top have a lot and the people at the bottom have very little. And what the system really wants is more distributed through the pyramid. And the people at the top, and most people are by definition lateral. I need to define this. The human race is not a coherent system. You know, we look at an ant colony and we see soldier ants, worker ants. We see the ones that attend the queen and we think, oh, insect colony, how, how crude. But the irony is, I think human beings are the same. Mm. I think we have a subdivision between lateral and linear thinking. And I think predominantly effective leadership that's creative is lateral leadership. And yes, you have linear leaders, but we'll talk about the limitations of linear leadership. It needs stability to operate. And any entropic environment quickly finds them out as unadaptive. So in this process of regionalization, this it will be lateral because most leadership is lateral, but on the spectrum of linear leadership, it's very linear. And it refuses to allow the transmission of power to a broader base of the pyramid. And there is a form of revolution. The revolution starts mildly. It's put down harshly. It spreads afoot. And the English Civil War is an ideal example of that process. And so you can think of Charles I as a linear leadership, and you can think of the parliamentarians as a lateral leadership. And essentially, they were Protestants too, and the Protestant belief was very lateral. It was disenfranchising a linear Catholic construct of control for individual empowerment, which is one of the hallmarks of lateral thinking. And who wins in a conflict like that? Well, it's inevitable that lateral leadership will overcome linear leadership because war is entropic requires adaptation and requires surprise as a hallmark of success. And lateral people are surprising because they do things you didn't think they were going to do. So in effect, the warrior subset of humanity is lateral. And I think it goes back, actually, to a, a stage of development whereby the hunter-gatherer is naturally lateral because every day is different. Every day requires adaptation. And so lateral hunter-gatherers were our origin. The big change happened for humanity when we became agrarians. And the agrarian society was predictable because you planted your crops, you did certain things at certain times, and it was stable, predictive, and you stayed in one place and you built interconnections with the other farmers. So linearity was a function of the agrarian patterns 10,000 years ago. And of course, that was when you had a population explosion. So that's why you see 70% of our populations are genetically linear, and there is roughly 30% of some kind of lateral process within our subsets. But and we found a way of socially integrating those two thought processes. And they are symbiotic, but they've got to understand how they interact to be positive and not just assume that all interactions are positive, which we'll come on to.
So in this regional civil war, it will always be the lateral people that overcome the process. And in the process, the lateral people rise and they are naturally creative and adaptive. So now you have a militarized society with lateral leadership and it has all this energy which has erupted to the fore. Can you think of a modern day example like that? Uh, perhaps not in recent history. Uh, that's not, not within the West. I'm curious. You, you, so, you, and, and your nationality is? I'm British. Oh, right. Right on your doorstep then. Yeah. So actually, Brexit was the English Civil War. Right. Exactly the same process. We restarted our empire cycle in the 70s. Thatcher kick-started us into a creative dynamic. Whole system restarts. And I have to say that some systems have much higher self-organizational energy than others. And Britain is very high. To restart from the collapse of an empire in the 70s to be where we are right now is a, is a remarkable achievement. And something that we should all look back and say, that's amazing. What's, what's interesting about it is that we did something which I think offers the most enormous hope to mankind. Because there is in no period in history has the phase of regional civil war taken place without bloodshed. But we did that. We actually contained this huge energy within society. And it's not long ago that, you know, friends wouldn't talk to each other. Friends were upset. You know, and in, in any other period, they would have actually started fighting with each other. But we didn't. We were constrained by a legal framework and a democratic framework that contained one of the most strongest sub-energies within society. And I think we should be really blown away by that human evolution right in front of us. In the process, we asserted the democratic construct. So Britain is not part of the other Western super empires decline. And when I wrote my book in 2009, I essentially assumed it was, but I created a couple of indicators to warn of change. And they're called, they're based around national energy because national energy is this thing you see with demographic expansion and the need to harness its organization. And essentially watching the medal table in the Olympics was key to that because every system that rose through the medal table was showing national energy. And you could see the rise of Germany, the rise of America, you could see the rise of the Soviet Union, and you could see the rise of China through the medal table and suddenly Britain was third. Hang on a second, what's that mean? And then we're second, not a coincidence. Our national energy showed through in our Olympic results. So when we came to the, to the process of Brexit, I was able to model it on, a, on an English civil war, regional civil war, and incredibly effectively predict all the outcomes of the referendums and the elections and what would happen in the end and how it would happen using this model. And you can go back and read my marinations to see how accurately they were portrayed. What's intriguing is in the advantage of not killing each other, which was a massive advantage in terms of elevating human behaviors for the future, we didn't quite finish the process. So what you really expected to see at the end of this is fully lateralized leadership and sub-leadership. So we ended up with a lateral leader in the form of Boris and co, because some of the people around him were. Some of them weren't, like Gove. Gove is not a lateral person. He's a linear person latched onto a lateral process with a different agenda, as we found out in the lockdown brigade's charge into the abyss. Um, and we see it in all sorts of other policies like Northern Ireland. His hands are on all sorts of things, which, you know, have, have ghosts that we now have got to work our way through, I'm afraid. Um, but the real problem is our government is linear. Everything to do with the civil service, everything that advises that rings round this, this lateral leadership is linear. 
And so their advisors are the wrong type. And now Cummings was a lateral leader, but he was a lateral leader that was off the reservation. And really, you know, he represented undisciplined lateral thought processes that were not ever going to make a difference. But he did represent the need to identify with change. And he represented the energy that might have changed the civil service or at least half changed it because he wouldn't have completed it, in my opinion. He would have started it and then it would have had to naturally find its conclusion with a more conscious route. But essentially, when he was removed, the civil service sat there and the linear people just carried on doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So we've got a problem where, where a lateral leader is advised by linear people all around with their protective mechanisms, unable to anticipate the entropic nature of the challenges we have. And we haven't completed our Brexit process. And we've desperately got to do that to maximize Britain's potential. So going back to the second stage of empire. Most systems now come out of their regional civil war fully militarized, fully lateralized, and within a short period of time, they run down their resource chains and start to secure their resource chains. So Britain, after the English Civil War, went after the Dutch. Interesting enough, Britain's global Britain construct is exactly the same, except for we've completely forgotten to secure those resource chains. You need a powerful military because that's part of the mechanism of securing them and building enhanced trade relationships. And we have neglected that totally in our current incarnation. This next phase is all about algorithmic expansion and the speed at which Britain took on the Dutch, beat the Dutch, then went for the French and moved to empire, shocked the world around it. This little island culture could use something that was quite unique, sea power, to dominate the world, never seen before on its scale. Now, sea power and hegemonic sea power is very different from land power. So sea power, when you invest in it, creates trade, and trade creates returns. So when you spend money on your navy, you end up with massively enhanced trade returns. When you spend money on your army, you've got to use them because when they're standing there, they're useless and they're a cost. And so basically in the past, you used to steal other people's property and that's how you expanded. And the Soviet Union found out in the Cold War, having a large standing army practically killed it with an inefficient economy in the downward slide of the commodity cycle. So If Britain were now to invest in its navy, it could replicate the model of expansion through influence and supply chain security. And we have failed to do that on the scale required. But Britain, after the Civil War, did it in spades. We also had another advantage, is that the ratio of coastline to internal volume of a country is a relationship between the number of lateral thinkers and linear thinkers. The reason is the sea is still highly entropic, And like the hunter-gatherer environment, it begats lateral thinking. I'm a sailor. So when you go out and you go sailing, you encounter the unknown all the time. The people that survive are are lateral and the people that don't are linear because they get swamped by the sea. So coastline to internal volume is critical. And Britain harnessed this seafaring lateralization to build the greatest war machine the world's ever seen, a fully lateralized Navy of Nelson's time that was unbeatable. Its technology was marginally less capable in some ways than the French, but the way it fought and commanded and operated its ships was without compare. Young men joined at 10. They were lateralized by choice because they came from seafaring families and they got to the top through meritocracy. So Britain's history is based on a meritocracy that was lateralized. That's its seafaring portion. Funny enough, politically, the Navy never has any influence because the land portion comes through the army, which is hierarchical. And Britain has a unique sort of duality between hierarchical history and meritocracy, which makes us truly unique in the world. And we combine it in different ways. Most systems are either one or the other. 
giving them limitations. So Britain's story in terms of its uniqueness to regenerate, some of it comes through this, this bipod infect of thought processes. At the end of this phase of regionalization going into expansion to empire, the system has become dominant. It's literally beaten everyone into submission. It's highly creative, highly innovative, creates revolutions in military affairs that outfight the opposition, and it becomes a dominant empire that reaches the limits of communication and expansion. It then goes into maturity, still has positive demographics, which is driving this process. And in maturity, you no longer have to fight everyone. And security now is such that policies become quite integrative, religious policies, differences. There's so much to go around. You don't have to fight over it. And that system starts to build institutions which incarnate for long periods of time in the future, the values of society. So the great architectural advantages in London, for example, built at the height of a system is very common when the empire manifests an external representation through its architecture. And then it reaches the peak of maturity. It's a silent night. But somewhere at the peak of maturity, something interesting is happening. All the lateral people that built the system, that built a dominant system that now is so dominant, there are very few shocks is starting to be replaced by linear thinkers because essentially it's a stable paradigm where linear thinking looked like a safer pair of hands. And you one by one, you remove the lateral individuals and you replace them with collective linear people and there's a shift. And at the peak of the system, the linear people start to have control over the process. And of course, the momentum of this great empire is such it goes on for decades and nothing looks like it's changing and more and more things happen. But silently, by the next stage, overextension, productivity and adaptation have now really slowed down because lateral creativity has been minimized and linearity and scale has been maximized. And then you reach a point, which is the end of overextension, like 9-11 for America, where it's very obvious that something is wrong with an external event, loss of a war, loss of an event like 9-11 and violence, and then decline happens. And decline is when the overextension, the creation of the process just collapses. And there are two forms of debt. The first debt is started at the end of regionalization when you build your monopoly, but you quickly pay that debt pile back. And that's China today. China's debt is the expansionary debt of building a USP, whereas America's debt is the debt that comes out of decline. When you stop being productive, you create leverage financially to compensate for slower growth. And you keep printing more and more money as your innate productivity decreases. And the illusion is everything's all OK, but it isn't because the more and more people at the top, few get wealthy and everyone at the bottom gets poorer. Social dissonance takes place. And that's where you end up with social and political fracture, which is one of the hallmarks of decline. One thing I want to extract from this in those decline phases is the prospect then of that growing gap between the wealthy and uh, the poorer segments of society. Does the model show, again, potential for civil war, conflict, revolutions in these, uh, these environments? And if they do, I suppose your analysis of Brexit was an interesting one. Describe it because, yeah, I mean, it, it it felt like a civil war played out on social media. You know, it's it's it, yeah. was, it was a civil war. It's just we didn't think and just kill each other. But it was all the energies of a civil war. Mm. It really was, and it was all the energies of lateral versus linear. When you think about it, and, and would you get the same now uh, in America's decline? Do you think? Do you think we'll see similar unfolding? Well, well, well so so what what you what? So let's just look at. The, there's another country that went through something very similar to where America was, and that's Britain. Because in about 1910, the Liberal Party had been born. And we didn't really understand it. But our empire was in decline. 
well and truly from 1870. 1870, we were a unipol. Somewhere around 1910, America and Germany were competitors. You know, the American empire, or the America, because it was an empire by the time it had fought the Spanish and acquired all sorts of global assets to become an empire, had a GDP equivalent to the British empire. And the Germans were not, you know, of not equal size, but they were certainly militarily, you know, climbing up a ladder to the point of real threat, especially on the continent, and trying to compete with us in a navy. What was going on at home, though, was that people were getting poorer again. And the Liberal Party was begat to redistribute wealth. And so in about 1910, 1911, there was a constitutional crisis with two governments. And it was so chaotic that essentially most people and commentators like Winston thought the military would have to step in. It was that bad. But ultimately, the thing that healed the rift was the clear and present danger of Germany. So America's parallel is this. Uh, is that socialism was predictable. Biden Biden was always going to win because essentially Trump didn't do anything to redress the wealth mechanisms. And more importantly, Trump just used words. He said, make America... I, I think Trump is a very, very failed president for a range of reasons. But for the biggest reason, he occupied the corrective slot post-Obama of the great power giveaway, which I was able to predict using this system. And the reason why I predicted it is when, and this is not meant to be racist, it's an observation of a social system. But when the underclass get control of the system, because demographically they've outbred the overclass, then essentially their agenda is different. It's social integration, and it neglects the construct of empire, which they sort of resent at some level. And there was the biggest power giveaway you've ever seen to the exterior challenges. And that epitomized a Palmer spirit, the greatest loss of American power for a decade, for a century. And the next response to that is make me great. And Trump keyed in to make me great. So there's a corrective slot where the energy of building, which is epitomized by Reagan in many ways, because that was, you know, successful expansionary period, is try is emulated. But it was occupied by a narcissistic version. Reagan served his country and Trump served himself. Obama served himself too. And narcissism is very typical in decline because the construct of serving the system disappears and everyone's serving themselves from the top down. And the sabotage takes place on an epic scale. So Trump occupied the corrective slot that could have pushed back American weakness beyond the next commodity peak in 25 and therefore reduced the threat of World War III. Instead, he left America in a more debilitated state for many, many reasons, and he started. And so he said he would make it great, but he made it weaker. And the next product of that weakness was socialism through Biden. And Biden's socialism is exactly that. It's trying to compensate for all these poor people at the bottom and completely ineffective and has no chance of doing it. It's perceived as weakness by China and Russia. And the war in Ukraine is a direct product of that social tumbling downhill. Okay, yeah, before we move on to talk about the Russia and Ukraine, where, where is where do you see the UK now in this five phase so, so we've actually moved into our second phase. Brexit was the end of our regional civil war, and we are now in an expansionary state. Now, when people laugh at me and say, well, let's just look at this. You look at our global Britain construct. We're more involved in the world than we've ever been. You know, you look at AUKUS, or you look at Sweden, or you look at Finland and the way that we stepped out into that. It's not just Boris's vision. In this case, he deserves credit because he does have that collective vision to expand. But what I have a real problem with is there's nothing behind it. And what you need behind it is accelerated defense expenditure because 20 years of negligent 
treatment of our armed forces has left us defenseless. So what you're doing is expanding without nothing to support it. And you've got to realize you had a civil war without militarization. And this militarization doesn't mean aggression. It means highly defensive mechanisms with the construct that Britain has. So our failure to spend 5% on defense and truly represent strength in democracy and deterrence is the most fundamental failure of this government. And it's really appalling when you look at what's going on in Ukraine right now. So that's where we are. Exciting period. We've reasserted democracy. We haven't truly taken the step forward to use our Brexit tools. And I've been warning through other cycles that we would face a massive wave of global inflation. And the only way that Britain could be is a massively high growth economy to survive the the waves of inflation. And we could have done that. We could have lowered our taxation levels, encouraged all the capital from Europe and America to come to us when they still had the money before it gets ripped apart in, in what I call the crash of the doomsday bubble. And we could be powered in a completely different way. And the failure to do that is a fundamental strategic failure of the government's vision for the, the strategic advantage we now have post-Brexit. Okay, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Now, you've, you've, you've mentioned the conflict in, in Russia and Ukraine. What, what, what has been the real catalyst for this conflict in your view? Well, um, so let's just go back to sort of how we treated the Soviet Union post the Cold War. And in truth, we didn't treat it very well at all. We didn't treat it like Japan or Germany post World War II. And we didn't really understand. We had this naive concept that everyone wants a democracy and they'll openly embrace it. I would argue that, you know, democracy amongst linear land systems, because you have fewer lateral people with self-responsibility, is something that takes time to seed and it needs guidance and support. We never offered that. We just stomped all over them. And somehow we left them with their nuclear weapons as if that wasn't a problem, you know, as if they were never going to use them. So we never addressed that issue, although we helped Ukraine disarm and then you know offered them absolutely nothing to protect them subsequently as we found out. So we didn't do that very well. I think Putin did have genuine grievances, but you've got to realize he was despotic from the beginning. There's nothing benign about Putin. Putin's success came because he came into power at the beginning of a new Kondratiev cycle, which has a 56-year period. In 2000, the peak was 25, and he rode that surge. Now, when he first came in, his only construct was, I need to be part of the EU because how else do we survive? Bottom of the commodity cycle, of course you'd think that. But by 07, the commodity resurgence had produced real wealth for Russia and certainly for his oligarchical structure and himself. Of course, as he saw the, the same belligerence that Britain, not Britain, but the West had in terms of moving into territory that was meant to be neutral territory in his mindset, the belligerence was, was ignited and there was money to actually feel confident to resist it. So his first resistance statement to the West in 07 coincided with the commodity wealth prior to the first drop. And then he must have had a bit of a shock because it dropped off a cliff in 08. And then it recovered strongly in 10. And then there was this huge period where it sat sideways around 126. And the money that flew into the coffers from oil at that price gave him the vision and money to be aggressive. And if you look at the strategic weapons programs that you know gave him the confidence to start Ukraine, they were all initiated as that wealth flowed into his coffers. And you could see there was a person that basically was no longer part of our camp was actually against us. And I think there was a lot of arguments that we didn't make that um, a process. We didn't integrate them. And I, I kept saying to people, we should be integrating Russia to surround China. 
And what we're really doing is each step he makes, we put another line down and we become, you know, it becomes more separate. And the really bad point happened in Ukraine, in my opinion. And it happened out of Obama's weakness because the chemical red line was taking place in Syria. And, you know, Putin was busy trying to deconstruct the old Cold War relationship between the three weapons of mass destruction, nuclear, chemical and biological. And if you use any one of those, you've got a nuclear warhead on your head. And that was the Cold War convention. And so what he was really doing in Syria was breaking that down and testing the West intention. And of course, he made Obama look like a total fool and then followed it up with a letter in The New York Times, which was humiliating for a narcissistic personality like Obama. So the opportunity came. And I think we fermented that revolution in Ukraine, both America and the key members of the EU, because Ukraine had gas and oil supplies that would have displaced Russia. So it was strategically advantageous to see it in the Western fold. So we begat that process. Obviously, Crimea happened next. We didn't really respond to it, didn't realize we'd crossed over a red line and things were getting out of hand. And we left it. And then, interestingly enough, for the next five years, commodities got weaker and weaker. And I kept saying to people, if you're going to have a rapprochement, now's the time because he's becoming more vulnerable with his revenues versus his plans and expectations. There will come a point where there's a commodity cycle low and we will have five years of horrendous commodity inflation and the wealth that flows into the coffers will make him so belligerent we'll never partner with him. We need to be doing it prior to the low in 2020. And no one listened. No one saw that. And I think that was still a way because underneath it all, what does Putin fear the most? Successful World War Three, end of the West, and he's living next to China. And how long does he last? It's the same problem Stalin had with Germany in the capitalist world. Exactly. How do I balance these two horrendous entities I can't stand and survive? And in the end, I think Putin's fear up until that moment was he's far, far more fearful of what the Chinese would do on his border than he ever was in the West, which he knew was never going to take Russia from him. So there was a strategic rapprochement that could have been used at that moment. But from the moment he initiated action in Ukraine, all those possibilities disappeared. And you know, I was able to predict the Ukrainian conflict for another reason, and that is in my construct of wars, there is a thing called a pilot war. And a pilot war is something that a hegemonic system is involved with that proves its strength or weakness. So I'll give you two examples, or three, actually, that are relevant. If you go and look at the Kaiser's perception of the British Empire, its failure to prosecute the war in South Africa, the Boer War, quickly and effectively, although it was a challenging war for anyone to fight, essentially for him, supported his idea that Britain was ripe for the taking, and he accelerated his arms program, following the evidence that it took so many men so long to subdue a bunch of Boers, who he supported directly, by the way. The Falklands War was something completely different. That was where this, at the time, the Soviet Union had this construct. The capitalism was weak. It would fall from a tree like a ripe apple, and they would invade Europe, and we wouldn't defend ourselves. And that was a justification for a huge standing army. The Falklands War turned everything on its head. And I remember I had the privilege of being at dinner with Margaret Thatcher at the 20th um, anniversary of the Falklands at the Chelsea Flower Show or Chelsea Hospital and surrounded by all the generals and admirals who made a difference. And I was sitting next to General Pike uh, and I said, you do realize that, you know, you saved the Cold War. And he said, I'm sorry, because up until then, people thought that it was essentially just a little colonial affair. I said, the intention that we demonstrated by going 8,000 miles of winning that war, changed the Kremlin's perception of our ability and our will to defend ourselves if attacked. And the Iron Lady Thatcher 
and what she represented meant that they could never ever roll into Europe because we would have gone nuclear and everyone would have lost. And that action meant the Cold War stayed cold, even though economically they fell apart as the commodity cycle decreased and their revenues dropped. And you can model a whole Cold War on one of these Kondratiev cycles, as in into the 75 peak, it looked like they were dominant again to win. And as a consumer society with high inflation and couldn't hold our own. And then when inflation dropped and the, and the whole process fell downhill from 75, that power balance shifted and along came Reagan and he pushed the barrel downhill with the right policies. Well, uh, later on, I want to unpack, you know, with, with the degree of predictability that these conflicts occur, you know, we'll, we'll talk about, you mentioned earlier, you, in the absence of a, a, an alternative method of competition, the conflict is inevitable. I'd like to unpack that later on as, as we explore this. But ahead of this, what, what then is your prognosis for this, the conflict in, in Ukraine and Russia? Where do you see this heading and what are some of the implications for peace in the West? Well, I mean, uh, I think I'm just surprised that people were surprised that he move forward it was very obvious he was going to move forward and our predictions were in the 95 to 98 percent certainty that war was going to take place we also predicted there's a strategic military alliance between russia and china which the evidence shows there was and she had the knowledge of that particular incident and asked putin to delay the invasion until after the olympics which funnily enough meant the ground wasn't hard enough meant that his his forces had to travel down roads because the ground was a quagmire and they were faced with a revolution in military affairs in the form of end laws which stopped tanks at choke points so you know and i think otherwise without those 4000 end laws and if they had been able to advance round blocks and the ground was hard enough the outcome might have been very different it was a particular application of a system now they have benefited more and more to the point where Western intelligence has eyes above the battlefield to the point where, you know, the commander, when his cigarette, they know where he is, when he is. And it's transmitted down in a way that looks like the Ukrainians are doing it. But never before has a war of this nature had zero fog of war for one side. What was challenging and I think interesting is that Putin knew that you know anything that Russia did that was aggressive towards NATO needed to create some kind of insulating bubble for him to be able to do his dastardly deed and not have NATO intervene. And so I wrote a lot about this de-escalation policy. It was a nuclear de-escalation policy, and it was designed essentially to take advantage of weak Western leadership that that basically on the margin of the use of nuclear weapons wouldn't know what to do. And that's exactly what happened. He made these nuclear threats. And I have to say, I was just flabbergasted to watch, you know, Biden and co talk about we've got to avoid World War Three, we've got to avoid World War Three. And it was like Pavlov's dogs were salivating, had been trained exactly as Putin essentially wanted them to be to stay out so that they could create this conventional bubble to do their worst. And I long argued that he is a profile of a bully. He's not mad that basically has children and relationships and that mutually assured destruction applies to him as much as it did to his predecessors. What we did was we showed, and the West showed, it could be bullied. And the trouble is, even if Ukraine ends successfully with the expulsion of Russian forces, there is a legacy of weakness in Western leadership. And the only leader that showed any courage, any you know commitment was Boris Johnson. Now, his motivation might have been to save himself, but in the process, he did save Ukraine without doubt and deserves ultimate credit for that, motivation aside. The error has been still, I would argue, that essentially the 
Although Germany is trying to reconstitute its armed forces, Britain refuses to. And considering we quickly built ties with Finland and Sweden, that's irresponsible. And you know we should be spending 5% a year of GDP, and we should be putting £100 million on the table to fix the weaknesses we already have. And that blindness is stunning and needs to be corrected, in my opinion. So where we are right now is that Somewhere in this process, when the, when, 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 and it reminds me a lot of the Battle of Britain. America looked at Britain and said they'll never win against the Germans. And you, you obviously had you know, Joe Kennedy saying, no, they're going to lose. And the Americans saying, just leave them to go down like the rest of the Europeans. When we actually won the Battle of Britain, suddenly Lend-Lease appeared. Suddenly American help appeared. And for whatever sequence of events, Ukrainian courage, weather conditions that forced them onto the roads, the application of end laws, that Ukrainians bravely survived the initial onslaught. And that was the Battle of Britain moment when America increasingly started to provide support. Britain obviously was doing it, leading the charge. But then a moment came when essentially the forces withdrew from the Kiev region because they'd been mauled. And more importantly, they just didn't have enough of them, didn't know how to fight them in a way that was definitively successful. And they sought to go to the Donbass. And my prediction for that was unless the West provided offensive capabilities, the chance of success were very high. But the West did. It finally worked out that essentially America worked out that unless it gave them offensive weapons, they were going to lose. And so that moment of U.S. lend-lease and the arrival of, of offensive weapons has now, I think, got to a point where it's very hard to see the Russians really ever, ever winning on the ground. Their forces are increasingly exhausted. They haven't fully mobilized. Their weapons technology is not a match for you know, the stuff that we give them. And most importantly, we, they, we have complete um, transparency over what goes on on the battlefield. So we're looking at increasingly the chances that actually the Ukrainians do evict the Russians. Now, I think for a long time, the American view is Ukrainian blood is better than our blood. And basically, in a sense of humanity over the suffering of Ukraine has been truly absent in this. And I don't think the threats of the nuclear process justify how slowly we've engaged. But we have now engaged. We're now committed to Ukraine being successful. And it's hard to see that outcome not being so. There may be reverses, there may be setbacks, but I think we'll keep putting, putting resource in to make sure that it's positive for the Ukrainians. I think the calculation is if you did it all of a sudden, Putin might be into let's use a de-escalation process. But if you do it gradually, you bleed him dry. So we are bleeding Putin. And I think increasingly there are signs and there will be signs of internally dissension. And he becomes more vulnerable without succeeding in any sphere. And the absence of the air force on the battlefield is a strange conundrum. There are all sorts of weird things about the way the, the Russians are fighting versus how we thought they would fight in terms of their superiority. Even the fact that TB2 drones are flying around the battlefield, like First World War SOP with camels, as someone quoted them, described them, and not being shot down is really strange. And that the Russian Air Force didn't show up for the 9th of May parade. There are some questions there. I think if we carry on on this track, you know, it's positive, but we just have to be very mindful of at what stage Putin, who faces his own death, without doubt, when he loses, responds to this. And that the lesson that we've seen with with Finland and Sweden is Britain made a linkage before they were fully committed to NATO or inside NATO to protect them in that hiatus. I wonder what would happen if, for the purposes of Ukraine, NATO said, 
in this particular regard, if nuclear weapons are used on Ukrainian territory, we will consider Ukraine to be part of NATO and retaliate on their behalf. We need to create and remove the doubt which allows this disin, this nuclear sort of process that Putin's created and takes slips it from under him and moves it to a higher level. Now, that means our politicians have to risk us. And that's the problem. They're not prepared to risk us. And the process is not risking us. They are risking us because deterrence comes through strength, not through weakness. And that's the conundrum that we still face politically. Well, it's it's certainly tricky. Um, I mean, we, uh, we said that uh, your story of Papua New Guinea was a first for this show. And having covered uh, the pandemic for the last couple of years, you're probably the first person that said anything positive about Boris Johnson in two years on our, our show. But it's a different context uh, here. Look, look I, I, think, I think it's very important. Okay, It's very easy to be polarised. Positive, negative. I think, actually, if we're going to get and move forward to a better state of being, we've got to say that was good, that was bad. We can't say that's all bad because that's exactly how we fail to distinguish between the behaviours we want to see and the ones we're actually seeing. So I, I'm critical about a whole host of things that Boris Johnson does. For example, lack of defence spending. It looked like it was Sunak was blocking it. Boris Johnson is also blocking it too. I think that's unconscionable. But yes, he did have a role in saving Ukraine. He did show that if you go to the private sector, a vaccine rollout will be more successful than if you do it through a government sector you've got to tick that. He did sit over the top of the lockdown brigade by giving them power and not stepping in and doing it. That's a negative. But I think we've got to be more nuanced and objective in positive and negatives. Do I think he serves his country? Highly questionable when you look at his moral code. (laughs) Does he serve himself? Definitely, that seems to be the hallmark. But we've got to do it in a way that recognises the terrain rather than anything positive is bad, anything negative. It's just that isn't good I, enough. Yeah, I, no, I, I agree with you. The complexity of the world requires that nuance, and I'm, I'm, fully, I'm fully with you on that one. Yeah, we, have, we have this oversimplification of, of so much in, in the world at the moment, and it, it doesn't allow for then uh, precisely what you've just described. So thank you, thank you for, sh- for sharing that. Now, in terms of history then, is there any clues about what, what ramifications this could have, this conflict could have over the longer term for the global order. You know, you've talked about the decline of the US until the ascendancy, the ascendancy of China. Absolutely. So I believe we've entered a new age of war. Um, so if you go back and you look at the First World War kind of happened, bang. Although, you know, that pilot war in South Africa, I think, was linked to it. The Second World War was a bit more complicated. We first of all had the Spanish Civil War, where communists and fascists fought it out. And countries like France and Britain just stood and watched it, which in itself, passive observation, was a sign of weakness. So you could think of the Spanish Civil War as a pilot war, a failed intervention in itself. It also offered a tremendous petri dish for Nazi forces to learn to fight a combined arms war with air power and tanks on the ground. And you can argue that they piloted their blitzkrieg techniques in Spain as a product of that. Now, as for the war proper, you could really argue it started with the acquiescence over Czechoslovakia. It wasn't Poland. But once Hitler got Czechoslovakia through the application of force and, you know, and Chamberlain's back down, essentially that was the start of the process. In the Far East, it was definitely Manchuria. So the, the precursors to conflict, that the dates we remember, I think were there. And I think, and I fear Ukraine is exactly that. It is part of a string of an age, the beginning of the age of war. Because the real war, the one that is really like of a mega magnitude, is China's conflict with the West, which is all but inevitable on the current path. 
And so what have we done? You know, what has happened? What has China learned from us? Well, learn that when you do things suddenly and you bully a Western society, it flinches and doesn't act quickly because we were incredibly slow to anticipate and incredibly slow to respond. That if you act into a gray area like Ukraine that isn't really protected by any envelope and Taiwan is exactly the same, there's a whole period when if you're successful, you'll grab it. So one of the issues around Taiwan is the strategic ambiguity of America has to stop. It needs to be very clear, as it should have been with Ukraine. No, Ukraine is not a member of NATO, but if you invade it, we will treat it as if it is. That's all we had to say. And the same with Taiwan. If you invade Taiwan, we will fight you and the Japanese will fight you. The Japanese are so worried about the ambiguous nature of American commitment, which comes in the light of Chinese weapons that threaten their carrier groups to the point where I wonder how easy, whether or not America can effectively defend Taiwan. And a book called Red Lightning, my fourth book, explains how vulnerable these carriers are to hypersonic weapons mounted on ballistic missiles of DF-21s and 26s. So um, I think it needs to be very clear that there is no strategic ambiguity. That's one of the key lessons. How many people understand what happened in 1914? And, and, and in 1914, obviously, the Germans had built this massive army and they were going to rerun 1870 and, and whop the French. It, you could see it coming a mile away. There were a series of um, crises like the Algecans crisis that tested British and French resolve and backed down, but they got worse. Um, what did it? I mean, there was Lloyd George, who was, you know, absolutely a diabolical individual, a liberal appeaser. And one of the things that I'm really strict about is that people that seek to be strong and use deterrence against potential aggressors are actually the peacemakers because aggressors don't take those people on. The people that are appeasers and seek to avoid war precipitate war. And we need to like etch this on our foreheads. Appeasement begats conflict. So when you go and look at Lloyd George's role in the run-up to the First World War, he told the Germans that Britain wouldn't intervene as leader of the opposition if they invaded France. And the Kaiser chose to listen to that. They made a fundamental error. They happened to go through Belgium, which is a British protectorate. And only because they went through Belgium did the public opinion rise to the fore in Britain. If they'd gone through directly to France, we would have just left them to it. After all, we left them to it in, in, in 1870. So appeasement of that nature, and Biden is a, a, a terrible appeaser. The Afghanistan withdrawal was the failed pilot war for America. From that moment onwards, we were in overtime waiting for either Russia or China to attack the West, period, with a certainty, because it wasn't just a withdrawal. It was an it was a elective route is the best way to describe it. And, you know, their challenge, as in Xi and Putin, was to make their move before they perceived Biden died in office as an old man. So, you know, you could see it wasn't something we were going to sit and wait for. They were going to move. And the only thing that now is probably the Chinese are digesting is of all the countries that can learn the lessons most quickly is the Chinese from the Petri dish of Ukraine. So let's just say we are successful. Let's just say in supporting Ukraine and Ukraine push Russia out. And let's just say that we don't have a nuclear trigger point. We hope not to, but we get through that because somewhere in the regime of Russia, Putin is deposed. And let's just be optimistic and think of Navalny as being the new president and Russia becomes pro-Western. What do we then face? And that's the most optimistic outcome. We face the most coherent military challenge the world's ever seen.
from an organization that thinks differently, understands completely how America responds. Uh, there was a red team in a, in a war game over Taiwan in America, and it completely defeated the blue team because everyone knows how America will respond in the time of conflict. And that's because America's now become a linear system in decline and the lateral system are the Chinese. So you know they're watching Ukraine and they're thinking, well, the real revolution in military affairs, we knew the intelligence gathering and removing the fog of war was key. But actually, drones on an epic scale are something that the Chinese can do like no other nation. So whatever we face next will be an adaptation of war that fully integrates small, large, medium-sized drones on a scale we can't imagine. They will evolve and they will be the ones learning from this Petri dish. So the longer it goes on and the more lessons come out of the Ukrainian conflict, the stronger the Chinese will come because you know they'll adapt faster than we will. So in effect, this process still weakens us. So every way you look at it, the only way you change that is you increase money in defense and you increase lateral leadership across all of your key bulwark organizations in the West. Because only a lateral person can counter the thinking of a lateral person. And that's our greatest vulnerability, linear leadership of decline in key institutions. Thank you, David. Now, uh, I did warn our listeners in the notes that this would be somewhat of a doomsday conversation. Um, you know, the prospect, you know, I'm a new father, the prospect of entering into a period of war for me is one that I don't take lightly. Um, but I hark back to what you said previously about how conflict is a way to deal with systemic weakness. Uh, and I've also heard you reference that this is a decade of consciousness or catastrophe. C could you firstly explain what you mean by this? And, and I'd like to unpack in closing, you know, is do you foresee an alternative? You know, can we elevate our consciousness to a point where we do find different ways to manage systemic weakness um, without violent conflict? So, so I, I'm really glad you raised this question because, you know, part one of, my message and why I set up Global Forecaster to communicate these important constructs and help organizations and nations adapt to the change was because first you've got to recognize who and what we are and how we got here. And right now it's pretty bleak if we choose to be unconscious. Right now the West is taking the role of a liberal society that refuses to recognize that aggression and predatory thought processes will perceive them as weak. Now, like all predators, and I was always struck by a lion, you know, on the Serengeti, for example, it always finds the roebuck that jumps the, the smallest height. But why does this big beast that could overpower many roebucks choose the weakest? It's because there is a chance that he gets kicked in the jaw, his jaw gets broken, and that's the end of his life. So he always chooses the weakest. And that's exactly the predatory mindset. Predators don't attack when there is a chance of you know, not going to work or there is strength on the other side. They only attack the perception of weakness. And right now, the persona of the West is weak. It's weak in our leadership. Biden epitomizes it. It's weak in our responses to Ukraine. And we need to change that. And as we become aware of what we are, we invite the very thing we most fear. And there is a process of decline whereby... I think that although we always say he he attacked me, the truth is, what did you do to let him think he could get away with it? What could you have done that raised that threshold of deterrence to the point where he didn't do it or she didn't do it? And that's something we really need to be aware of. And part of that process is taking the message from Ukraine. And if we get lucky, we've got lucky 
because of the timing of the attack, because Russia is in terminal decline as a country, and the army is big enough to represent and be, you know, have very low national energy to adapt and create coherence when it's facing this kind of opposition. We're lucky because of Xi's intervention and the delay of timing. We're lucky because Boris stuck his neck out and sent out 4,000 in-laws, which were the weapon of the moment, which created time. All of those things are luck. We didn't do it because we're smart. We need to pull apart our behaviors and realize how flawed they really are and our responsibility for facilitating such loss of life and horrendous situations by our liberal weakness and realize that the China is not Russia. China is an aggressive predator that needs to be a hegemon by 2030 because of the rise of India behind it. It is time compressed and it faces and we face the next peak of the commodity cycle, which regulated the peak and start of 1914. It regulated the American Civil War's commencement. It was the peak of the Cold War. And now it's going to be that moment that catalyzes hegemonic challenge unless the West wakes up. So I think that's really the key message. It's in our power. And the first thing that, you know, Britain is now, I think, the leader of the Western world. It isn't the leader in size of economy and the size of its army. It's the leader because it's reasserted its democracy. It's in an expansionary phase and it thinks globally. So if Britain takes the decision to move to a 5% defense posture and to basically understand the imminent threat we face and danger and mobilize ourselves to it, make our economy more resilient and our people more resilient, I think Finland is a tremendous example of national resilience and what they've done to protect their people in bunkers and their whole mindset towards conflict. And they've preserved the peace because Russia didn't choose Finland as a target. It chose Ukraine. It's a good example. It went to a weaker place. So we need to wake up for that. And that's part of our mobilization. And unless we don't do that, if we do that, then we can say we've done all we can do. And if we don't do it, we have responsibility for what follows. Because what follows in the construct of catastrophe is a war that will engulf the world and very likely potentially destroy humanity and take us to the edge of our existence. We won't get through this one. China is too committed to the expansionary process, has too many people to lose and will not stop at anything and has far more national energy than Russia could imagine at this stage of its cycle. And part of the consciousness process is recognizing the role wars face in the evolution of our societies. Just recognizing it like an alcoholic, knowing they're an alcoholic, is 51% of our challenge. How we replace it, I suspect, is about traveling off our planet to realize our planet is one and actually there's a big universe with other challenges we need to face. That's the step that will do it. But, but this is the decade when we either become the sum part of our experience or we become subject to our unconscious habits, which will inevitably lead to horrendous outcomes. Oh, David, I don't feel like I want to end on that kind of <laughs> devastating cliffhanger. Well, 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 well okay, so, 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 so what I'm giving us is the choice. Yes. You know, if you're an alcoholic and a drug addict, you have a simple choice. Either stop or you die. Mm. And, you know, so what do you do? You choose to live or you choose. So the choice is really simple. Do we choose to live as a race? Do we choose to invest in our children? And my personal journey on this is, is I am thoroughly dyslexic. Okay. So when I created my first constructs around 01, people, and I started to speak, I was rather alarmed because no one threw tomatoes at me. And I realized that they all had the dots in their head and I was joining their dots and reconfiguring them. And they go, oh God. And I thought, oh, now I can't really walk away from this. 
the really seminal moment was the arrival of my twins in 05. And one o'clock in the morning, I had sort of a bottle in each hand. I was thinking, oh, my God, what have I done on a fatherly level? More importantly, I thought, what world have I brought these children into? I need to share this knowledge to explain to people that if we carry on down this avenue, they won't have a future. So what has drove me, and, and, and it drove me the next day, I could suddenly write things that the day after I could read again. It was the sort of... I'm not religious, but it was like the gift of tongues in a micro version where I could suddenly start to write. And that was the journey of writing and communication that you see in my books and you see in my work on the website. Um, and I am driven by there is there is an alternative to this. We don't have to accept this. And we don't have a choice but to make this change. And Global Forecast on my work is about showing people this change is possible. But first, you need to come with the horrendous terms that we are really at a critical moment that is the survival or not of our race and our children and what father or what mother wouldn't do everything they could. And one of the things that I've talked about a lot is, you know, warfare tends to be the domain of men, but actually it needs to be the domain of women. They need to understand the history of warfare. They need to be interested in how wars are fought because women bear our children and our children go off to war. And surely in a democracy, they should be far more forthcoming in truly understanding the nature of war rather than actually just closing their eyes to it and saying, over to you men. And I think that's one of the things that we could do in terms of society's perception. It's understanding that wars happen through weakness. And your children are better protected as a mother if you show strength than actually if you acquiesce and, and seek appeasement. Constructs like that have the ability to change the way we view things. It needs to come from our leadership. It needs to come through education. And it needs to come yesterday. So I don't think all is lost. But I think it's pretty desperate right now that we are so blind. And our problem is, we, and I think it starts, Britain needs to get rid of its linear leadership. And if Britain could replace it with a more lateralized leadership from the top down to the other levels and the advisors, then Britain would do what it's done already in Ukraine, start to lead the democratic world down a different path. So I've always said that Brexit wasn't just about Britain. Brexit was about the rebirth of one of its democracies in the super Western Christian empire that could lead the way and confront the rise of autocracy with courage and affirmed in its democracy. So being British is is you know is critical right now, and every British member of the electorate needs to stand up and understand just how we've been put at this moment at the tip of the spear that can make a difference. And if there's something that Johnson really has done, he's shown that difference. Now, we could do so much more, but still, he has shown that difference in a way that we haven't seen since Margaret Thatcher in terms of the way we've supported Ukraine. And I think that can carry on. It can be applauded. And I think he's vulnerable to responding to the electorate's needs when the electorate clearly states what they will and won't accept. So the possibilities are all there. The pieces are on the table but they require an honest appraisal of what, how the pieces lay at the moment and how they can be refitted. So there's definitely hope, but first of all, you've got to digest the dark place we're in right now. Yes, I mean, Jim Collins once said, you know, you have to, conf well, this is a core concept of Jim Collins, confront the brutal facts. You know, it's the first step to change is to confront yes. the, br the brutal reality that you're facing in order yeah. to get really, really clear. And I think today's conversation, I mean, we've had, a number of different guests share their perspectives on on the conflict. We've had Vijay Prasad, we've had Alex Thompson, and now uh, yourself, David Murrin, looking at this conflict uh, from different eyes, different lenses, different perspectives. Um, this has been our goal. Elevate is actually to really get a, a, a broad understanding of what's happening in order that we can start to look at 
making that decision not to continue down the path of catastrophe and actually enter that point of consciousness. Exactly. And there's one more challenge I should probably just highlight, okay, which is very important. So America went into decline from 01 and 9-11, and essentially that's when it started printing money. Now, all empires in decline print money to compensate for loss of productivity. So they did it three times, you know, GDP by the bottom of 03. And then chug along to the bottom of eight and they go to 10 times. And that worked again. That's a habit. So they print more and more money as they become less competitive at each entropic shock in the financial system. I think there is a huge case that the origins of the virus came from a laboratory without doubt. Without doubt, it was weaponized. Whether it was released intentionally or not, let's just leave that as an open question. Its timing was remarkably fortuitous because it came at the moment when Trump started to constrict the process where China was a manufacturing export-driven system. And funny enough, right afterwards, it became an internally fueled consumer society. And we were able to predict that you would see supply chain problems because it wasn't producing things it did produce because it had removed itself from one model, which it used to build the manufacturing base with Western capitalism, to another model, which was essentially one of preparing for war. Exactly the same process the Nazis went through in their four-year plan after the invasion of the Rhinelands. In fact, you could model what China's been doing since 2020 and the pandemic's arrival to how its economy has been functioning. And it's amazing people don't see it. And for anyone involved you know, in investment, you get your fingers cut off. They're gone. You need to get out what you can now because it's just going to get worse. But what happened was that they definitely weaponized its release from the point of arrival. And that meant maximizing its impact on the Western world and linking the idea of lockdowns because they produced economic constriction with containment of the process. And then we had echoes of it in, in our countries, almost we thought, well, if we're like you, we'll, we'll do it. There's a subconscious transmission there or conscious one. The net effect was we blew all of our debt levels through the roof. And we then created a subsequent final stage of a bubble in the U.S., I call that bubble the doomsday bubble. It's basically the end of a hegemonic sequence of 100 years. It's displaced from when America went in decline because in decline you print money and you inflate your assets. And that, so people say, but America's assets are higher than they've ever been. That's because you printed so much money, you've inflated them. And I was able to predict the Nasdaq's peak exactly, exactly from 15,000 that it would be 16,742. 16, and the reason why I predicted it this is a mathematical algorithm with the price pattern. Now, that is the end of the bubble of 100 years of the stock market in the US. We are now in a secular deflationary asset environment. And somewhere on the line, it's going to turn into a crash. So the problem we now got is we've got tons of debt and we've got a de-inflating bubble. And the inflation de-inflating bubble, it comes from the waves of inflation. And understanding inflation is really important. There are three components. One is input inflation, which is linked to the Kondratiev cycle. That's the same inflation we suffered into 75. It reached 15% CPI in the US and they had 15% rates. And America was pretty much near the peak of its empire cycle. And it barely survived as a consumer society, the experience of that process. We are now with America in decline, massive debt levels, low competitive productivity, and we have two other forms of inflation. We have the reverse engineering of exporting our manufacturing to China as we have to remanufacture somewhere else, which is massive inflation, massive. And we also have this wall of money inflation from all the printing. So even when you get a demand slump, which may 
come with it, with the equities going down. You still have the other two forms of inflation that make it systematic. So the West is going into hyper-stagflation. And the problem you've now got is how do you spend more money on defense when you in a, in a slump like that, when your whole economy is on its knees post-29? And that's the other challenge we now face as a product of where we are. And so it's not just the conflict and the rise of China and Russia. It's also we're at the weakest part of our cycle as a consumer society with those three elements and the decisions we took, which kept inflation low for 20 years when America was in decline, which made what real growth it was apparently real rather than negative already, when it should have been going, yeah, it turned negative through the, the commodity cycle going up and then the inflation going up, input inflation. So we suppressed it and now it's all come back, coming back in like a wave. So there is, there, that's the other dimension to this challenge that, you know, how do you get out of it? Well, America and Europe can't, because structurally, you can't just suddenly make something productive, but Britain can. And Britain does it by becoming an ultra-low taxed environment. It attracts massive investment from Europe and America, and it uses that investment to re-stimulate its growth. So even the engine that we have, where we need to be the leader when we face what goes on with the threat of Russia and China, the engine for countering this is in our power, because we took the decisions to allow that engine to be facilitated with Brexit, and we desperately need to initiate them. Thank you, David. Uh, it's provoked me to ask one final closing question, I suppose, you know, from, from the from the public from the public perspective, looking at what's happening in these macro trends. What's the opportunity for the indiv- individual members of the public? Because obviously, we're seeing rising costs of living. We're seeing this inflationary period. People are worried about their money. I, you know, I know you spend a lot of time working with. Uh, clients to help them manage their money during times like this. For, for Joe Public, what's what's the opportunity so, for for individuals? So, so my 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 view right now is first of all preserve what you have, and for the next sort of twelve months, I would be very happy in in a cash position. Yes, I'm happy to accept that I might lose eight percent through inflation, but I'm not prepared to be in asset classes which are, are, you know, could be very difficult and have difficult times. So that's my first step. And I'm very concerned for people who worked a lifetime in their pensions, believing pension managers know what's happening. Because one of the products of printing money is for over a decade now, normally you get a mixture of lateral and linear asset managers. But the printing of money has created this giant trend where the lateral ones have been filtered out. And the whole system is completely linear and unable to anticipate a big shock. So leaving your money in the hands of that system at a time when a big shock is around, I think, doesn't make any sense. So I think that preservation of capital is the primary for reserves. In terms of surviving it, you know, and you're now thrown into a storm in a lifeboat, you just have to really minimize your costs. You have to minimize your unessential mechanisms and realize this is going to get so much worse than than it is right now. Uh, And that comes down to essentials. Um, And... Most importantly, you need to understand the concepts we've talked about and demand change, not in just change the leader. It's a change in the way of thinking and being that's going to change the outcome. And the most important part of that is to demand lateral thinking leadership that's sensible, not, you know, five standard deviations of randomness, or can think through the problem and work out and accept the unacceptable to create a new solution. 
We fought for that in Brexit. We fought for it, you know, collectively, disagreed. That's what's our heritage right now. And we need to manifest. Making that very clear that we won't accept anything less than that is the first step. And everyone has a voice in a democracy and it's like a cascade. So speaking loudly about that and not just saying they're all a bunch of tossers. Yes, they all flawed, but actually saying what we need is lateral leadership. Who is lateral out there? Who can do it? Have you lateralized your department? NHS. Okay, let's just look at the NHS. It is a basket case. So it's very clear that our form of medicine, our mechanisms don't work. Too administrative center. Why? Because it's full of linear people that begat more linear people and nothing works. So you need to start again. You need to have a linear, a lateral process. You need to have a preventive form of medicine. You need to make a natural process whereby preventative medicines like gut flora technology, which actually prevents so many diseases, which is cheap to initiate. And you create your whole program where the country has a different consciousness towards health. You don't tell people that if they, you know, they can't have sugar, you explain to them sugar will kill you. And if you do this, it's your responsibility. If you smoke, please take out private health insurance because the NHS isn't there for you. If you do things that we know are un, that are not healthy, then please do them, but please pay for the consequences. We need to think differently. And the NHS is a fine example. All that money could be spent on defense and we could have a healthier environment and healthier people. And I often think about, and it isn't really you know PC, but I, you know, I believe in looking at positives of systems and the negatives to learn from them. There's something that I ne never forgot, and that was from a D-Day veteran who clambered off a landing craft in, in Gold Beach and clambered up the beach. And in his diary, he wrote, it was really weird seeing these you know, really good physical specimens of dead Germans on the floor and looking at the, the, the dwarfic characteristics of my peers, you know, suggesting they were a pretty sort of ugly bunch with teeth missing and everything else. And recognizing that, you know, this idea of the, 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 this concept of a superior race that we find so unpalatable in its expression of domination actually had another part of it where so they did something that promoted well-being and health and vitality in the German population, which they then harnessed to go to war. Now, what happens if you could do the same, but without going to war? You create values, mechanisms you know, that are completely different from the ones we think about, where people are responsible for their health and well-being. We have to start doing that. And if you do that, every member of your society becomes more productive and the whole system becomes productive. And we need someone with the courage to implement that. I think it's very possible. And if you went around all our systems and did that, if you went around, for example, education, and you said, okay, great. So I can tell you the whole educational system is orientated towards linear, linear learners. That's why lateral people have problems going through the system and manifest later, but they're highly, they do entrepreneurial things. What happens if you split your system into a lateral system and a linear system? Because each need different kinds of learning. And then you maximize the number of lateral people with high levels of education. And you recognize what they are from the beginning. You don't create a two-tier system. You explain the importance of symbiosis. But things like that could radically change mm. our nation's collective productivity in generation. Mm. And they also changed the process of recognizing that we see there's a problem. We've tried adaptation. At the moment, we just try, we just keep iterating the same hole, digging it deeper. And that's actually very depressing to watch and doesn't give anyone the aspiration to try new things. So I think it's about engendering in, in Britain a completely different process of can do, will do, and how to do it. And I'd love to see that. And, and Global Forecaster is you know, attempting to be a part of that with the intellectual property it shares and the ideas it shares. Thank you, David. Now, uh, as I mentioned, we've had a number of different perspectives on these things. The whole purpose of creating Elevate was to be able to have these nuanced discussions. There'll be things from each of the different discussions that you'll take. There's other things you may leave, but I think what, what we're trying to create here is a, 
a rounded uh, assessment of the situations that we're facing in order that we can then come to that place of elevated consciousness, lateral thinking. I certainly hear a key message here that we need more lateral thinkers. Um, the, the, sign, the kind of alarm bell that goes off me of a lateral thinking is not for me personally, but it feels like, you know, the lateral thinkers are the ones that disrupt systems. You know, that's the, the typical in entrepreneurship and innovation. Is there a bias to self-preservation that kind of keeps these lateral thinkers from coming into power because they do disrupt the status quo? Well, um, I think what happens, what happens in America, for example, is if you go and look at the way the political system works, there are so many old, wealthy people that have their opinions based on the past rather than the future, that, that the new energy can't rise, which is part of why political structures decline in that final phase. So, you know, there's a whole spectrum. There are highly disruptive lateral thinkers, you know, who basically blow things up and leave them in pieces like Cummings. And there are people who actually have social values which are coherent and are prepared to share their gifts and actually harness them to create change. If you look at a special forces organization, the original special forces were all lateral people. But when you suborn them to a common purpose, they were incredibly productive. So the trick is to have a common purpose that bonds individuality and harnesses them to a collective goal of success. And then natural people become huge engines of change collectively. Thank you, David. Uh, now, for just final piece, David, people would like to follow up with your forecasts, your, your marinations uh, and the different uh, advisory services that you have. What's the best place for people to uh, locate your work and, and what's the kind of best entry point for people to uh, get involved with? Uh, so um, go to the site uh, www.davidmurrin.co.uk M-U-R-R-I-N as you can see from the front here and on that site is really a window into the different things that hopefully we're offering. We have three products in effect. Global Forecaster which was and is um, my endeavour to share the knowledge and theories with everyone in the public to empower them to be have better perceptions and understanding and, and be a more effective voice in our society. Some of those ideas will be challenging. And I often hear people that hear me listen, go, God, that was really challenging. But 24 hours later, you changed. I thought about it and it changed everything. So don't expect it to be easy when you first start. This is a reprogramming of what you assume with a different way of thinking that empowers you to make different decisions. And it manifests in podcasts, all of which are free. Uh, you become a member of the site and you'll know when podcasts come out. And then there's uh, marinations. And marinations are the written version. They come out twice a week. I don't write because I feel I have to write. I write when I feel I have something to say. They're all based upon predictions and giving you the theories of essentially why we come to those conclusions. Because in the open part of the site, all our theories are listed. And you can see from those theories how they work. It's £50 a month if you're an annual subscriber, less than a newspaper. And it's predicted most of the major events in front of us. And it's designed to empower you to understand the world better. And in that respect, there are four books in the sequence. There's Breaking the Code of History, which was the formative construct. Um, it, there are only a few of those left if you wish to buy them. So this edition, we're just struggling to get the second one out. It'd be a while. So if you want to go, there's only a few hundred if you're lucky. Um, then the next book I wrote was Lions Led by Lions. Now, it seems like an obscure topic, and it came about in a strange way because 
my son had an airfix model of two tanks on the first world war said dad can you help me and i looked at it and i just happened to be a, a, a modeler on the quad so i thought well, why don't we build a, a real model so i did the research to find a thing called the battle of amiens in 1918 on the 9th of august and it was like no other battle i'd heard about the first world war because britain literally whopped the germans and just dominated them over four days and it was the beginning of a process that over a hundred days destroyed the German oak, completely destroyed them and forced them back to their lines. And I looked and thought, no one learns about this. So I built this model over two years, it was you know huge and it was detailed and it had aeroplanes above. And then I wrote a book. And the book brings the parallels of German challenge to Britain as China is challenging America. And it tells you the story of what happened, Lloyd George's role in accelerating it, how they won the battle and this combined arms conflict. And actually the role of Haig, which was not a donkey because he wouldn't have begat an army that was so adaptive, it wouldn't have happened. And it talks about the generals that were successful who were lateral and the ones that were linear that weren't and displaced and how the relationship between the tank in the British army empowered the soldiers to fight and the relationship of denial in the German army broke the linkage between trust between the men and their soldiers. And then it talks about some of the lessons that could be applied now. So it's a new understanding of what really happened and the application of history to today's environment. I love it. It's a really exciting concept to bring to the um, And having seen military people read it and love it, I know it's, you know, right up the street there. Then I wrote a book called Now or Never. It's really a report. It was my second defense review. I wrote one in 2015 because I was so upset at what I saw. And that got to a few people. Only this time I got it out early. And I call it Now or Never. It was in the pandemic. And all my friends said, what are you doing? No one's going to take any notice of you. I got it into the Treasury, got into the MOD, and I got it into number 10. And three days or three weeks later, Boris came out and made his first statement of how important defense was for the conservatives. And he used all the phrases in Now or Never. And I remember thinking, wow, that really worked. It'd be nice if you called me, please. <laughs> so then it came to the defense review and they ignored everything. Uh, and uh, I was approached by one of the services who you know, I provided inputs to who wanted a different outcome than they got. Um, and then finally, I, with the insult injury was the time when Boris spoke in front of the defense committee and talked about tanks not being relevant and used the, even the title now or never, which you know made me realize he had read it, but hadn't listened to it. And I realized that, that no one had really taken notice. It talked about the threat of Russia and the imminence of their challenge as a bully unless we confronted them with strength and the imminence and almost inevitability of the Chinese challenge and that we were now a part of that global regime to protect it. And then the, finally, in desperation, I wrote a book called Red Lightning when I realized I hadn't understood the mathematics of how weak our forces have become in the face of evolutions on the other side. So Red Lightning is how China wins World War um, three in 2025. It's only short, but it's very technical and it shows the geopolitical lead up, which includes in this case, Russia has actually been suborned to the West, funny enough. I hoped it would be done peacefully. And it was there, not as a prediction, but as an example in people's mind that Russia could be seduced to the West under the right circumstances. And how America and Britain lost its one carrier in the Far East and all its carriers in a single strike. And then how the other carrier in Britain had, had all the new technology we could put onto it and how it resisted. But ultimately how democracy fell. Um, and it was designed to wake people up to how imminent the, the failure in World War Three is of the West if we carry on this way. So they're all available, uh, they all interlink, and they're consistent. And then on a, a higher level, um, for those people involved in the investment community, there is a, a product called Global Trader. 
Global Trader is really a hedge fund. It is about the prediction of all the macro complex. We track our alpha, we publish our alpha, and it's pretty impressive. We pick most of the major moves from top to bottom. We allocate sizes. It's a hedge fund that people pay to access. It's not for, sadly, for the everyday investor. And I can't give everyday investment to the person on the street, but I will tell them when the bubble's collapsing and give them some hints. And then the third product is Global Advisor. It's for governments, corporations who really wish to have this information translated into A, warning them of the environment ahead and B, how to mitigate and survive these entropic waves as they come. And, you know, clients include companies, entrepreneurs, government agencies and the armed forces. Thank you, David, for your comprehensive insights today. This has been a fascinating conversation. Um, we did we did uh, discuss prior to the interview that this this one could go long. So uh, <laughs> we, 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 uh, it's such a, a complex subject that requires attention to detail. I, I think we've brought that here today. So thank you so much for your time and energy on the on the show um, and all the work that you're doing. Um, davidmurrin.co.uk you can see the URL on the screen there if you're listening to the audio version it's davidmurrin uh, m-u-r-r-i-n.co.uk um, and my final call to action to you is if you are watching our show on video we are also available on audio you can find us on Spotify Apple all the major podcast platforms but the best way to stay in touch with our latest uh, interviews like this is go to danastingregory.com forward slash podcast. Join our mailing list and you'll be kept up to date with all of our latest content and campaigns. Uh, I want to say thank you again to David. Uh, and Thank you to our listeners for the latest episode of Elevate. This is the second episode this week where we've covered the situation in Ukraine. If you missed our session with Alex Thompson from the UK Column, you can you can check back uh, and see that uh, that was broadcast earlier this week. So thank you once again for everyone uh, listening at home. Uh, and thank you again to David. And I'll see you on our very next episode of the Elevate podcast. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for listening to the Elevate podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share and subscribe. And you can also check out our video versions of the show on YouTube, Rumble, Odyssey, and Facebook by searching for Dan Astin Gregory. I also invite you to continue the conversation by joining our private community, the Elevate Network, and you can do so by visiting weareelevate.org. Thanks again. I'll see you on the next episode.